0: Welcome to Ms. Lyrics Poetry Outlaws. I'm your host, Katherine Owen. Poetry, it makes nothing happen. And that's a beautiful thing. Chapter 11 in the other 23 and a half hours is called Free Range Writers. And it's about how poets can benefit from working other types of jobs than those predictably assumed to be held by writers in this country. Uh Often we have a very singular path. We are presumed to want to stay in academia, and that is seen as one of the only real ways we can make a living. As everybody knows, poetry doesn't pay so what you do, you go these days and you get your doctorate in English literature, or you get your MFA in creative writing, and then you hopefully get a decent position in a college or university, though they are actually a few and far between if you think of security. And traditionally, you know, before the middle of the 20th century, this was not the case at all, and they're there are, of course, pros and cons to this, but, you know, we have Wallace Stevens, insurance adjuster. We have, you know, TSLA working in a bank. We have many poets doing other things, farming, uh, you know, working in coal mines, being delivery drivers, uh, many other options, uh, including being, you know, independently wealthy. <laughs> and parenting. But I think that, you know, I've never followed a typical path that way. I did get a master's in English. I have taught on and off uh, independently and in institutions, but mostly I've steered clear of having anything that's predictable that way or stable. And of course, there are drawbacks to that. My income is mainly composed out of bits and pieces and I've done everything from, you know, tutoring, editing, freelance writing. Um, I've I've worked as an art model. I have worked as a stagehand. I've spent nine years now working in production assistant and props in film off and on in Vancouver, um, done lots of other little jobs that were weird, like uh, promoting a tattoo magazine and such like things. And it can often feel precarious, especially now that I own a house. But also, I don't think there's any other way for me. And I think that it's the case with a lot of poets like Alice Major. She spent most of her life working in an office building, uh, doing receptionist work. And a lot of her poetry, like The Office Tower Tales, have come out of that. Uh, Jenna Butler, she did work in uh, the university, but she has decided to mostly farm now. And Kate Braid may teach in the university now, but she spent a huge bulk of her life working as a carpenter. So there's, there's just so many other ways of being in the world that are not just drawn from um, doing a type of labor that is perhaps overly connected to one's art and maybe too intermingled with one's practice. And as a teacher in college, university setting, you're often working with beginners in the art form over and over and over again. And that might have, well, you know, you could always be opening your eyes to new possibilities and and uh, fresh energy, but at the same time, it could also burden and weigh down your, your time and your um, interest in your own work because you're feeling oversaturated and weighed down by your duties. So, as Jenna Butler says, working with my hands makes sense to me. Slows the frantic pace of the outside world and gives me time to observe and contemplate. And Gary Godfredson also does this. He works with horses, and he calls it thinking with his hands. So instead of just having a job where you're sitting at a desk. You're standing talking. You have a job that works with your physicality. It works with your senses. That is something wholly different from the act of reading and writing and thinking in that way. And so it can refresh you and re-engage you for your poetic craft. So I'm going to read a poem by Jenna Butler called Keswick. The light here just off true. Sight blurred by cloud, by distance. What opens? Flint-riddled hills, church cradled like balm. Bridal path at dusk, rank and white with hawthorn. The rookery, a cuckoo, burrows dark wings. Cow parsley shatters into bloom. Our grief in the forgetting. And I'm going to end with the 12th and final chapter. I'm just going to read a quote from it about the whole necessity, which is the general argument of the entire book, for poets to give back to their community, to maintain a level of energy in their poems by engaging in multiple different activities, genres, mediums, uh, collaborations. Uh, events and practices that enable you to reinvigorate your life force and, obviously, in in the process, your own art creation. So the last chapter is called A Way of Life. And I write, poetry, as with art in general, thrives on freedom and diversity. A poem is a channel for energy. An energy is best created in an environment in which the focus is on the art itself, how it manifests, connects, flourishes, and sends out ecstatic and exploratory roots. Confining poetry to one kind of coursing is equivalent to what is done to waterways beneath a city when they are enclosed in cement and forced to follow a singular path. Let's daylight these streams and bring the writing of poems to a place where it can thrive in multiple rivulets, fed by a range of sources. To carry the water metaphor further, why not? Instead of relegating ourselves to a homogenous ecosystem where the pond is sluggish and there are only a few lily pads, such as publication, teaching jobs, grants, and awards, why don't we remember there's a whole ocean out there, none of which our art making needs to decline in the aim of becoming as dynamic as possible. So that is the other 23 and a half hours or everything you wanted to know that your MFA didn't teach you came out in 2015 from Wolfsack and Wynn. Find it if you're interested, and thank you very much for listening. You've been listening to Ms. Lyric's Poetry Outlaws. Stay fierce, word musicians.